Message from the Cast This is not a word-for-word rendition of Tempest in a Teacup by A.K.A. Vertigo. Please feel free to read the original fic along with us, but keep in mind that we have made necessary changes to accommodate the needs of a living and breathing audio experience. This is performed in the spirit of the source material, but with the recognition that necessary changes have been made. Thank you for listening. Arc 1. Patterns of Ink and Metal. Cycles. Summer. It is the season of heat, gold air and parched shadows, clogged streets and noise. Though, when is this city, jewel of the nation's crown, ever quiet? A silent fire is a dead fire. In this season lives danger, the risk of plague roaming overheated alleys and rooms, looking for a face to lick. Not surprising, then, that Katara's first encounter with a fire summer keeps her in bed and Iroh in worry. Often, he sits within her darkened room, waiting for each bout of dizziness and shivering to pass. During these periods, Katara jerks between trembling wakefulness and fevered dreaming, though it is a crime to call this dreaming. A dream should never pour such terror into a child's face or voice. Awake, she struggles to stomach soft rice and ginger broth, consuming glass after glass of cold, sour juice. Iroh is used to relying on the body's power to exercise and strengthen, to heal through a faster pulse and warmer muscles. The physician forbids this. She isn't a fire child, Iroh. Let the waters settle before rushing them to flow. But Iroh watches the girl's face wane and droop, stagnating amidst forced comforts and mounts a campaign to fight the crash. He tells her stories, new and old, true and fantastic, long and short. Their telling makes Iroh realize two things. His tales are many, and similar enough to be one. She listens with an interest that outshines her delicacy. He brings her tea and small red oranges, skirting Shuang's orders in his mission to tempt her appetite. Unlike before... Katara accepts the treats with all the willingness her health can muster. He fills her room with toys, games, picture books, jade carvings tiny enough to palm, silk figurines with fairy faces, lacquer combs with silver teeth, and scrolls of words she needs help reading. Once, he brings a cricket in a painted bamboo cage, but the next morning, the cage is empty and Katara is happier. Iroh takes the hint and commits it resolutely to memory. For now, her happiness is a tentative thing, evanescent like a dew. Iroh invites nothing to impede its roots. Weakened though she is, Katara's nature refuses to be weak. It's not long before her stubbornness finds opportunity to growl. 
upon discovering her evening soup laced with a sleeping draught to drown the nightmares. She retaliates by using the broth to water Iroh's azaleas. Luckily, a compromise is reached quickly. Katara will accept the drug, but only when brought openly and upon her request. Already, Iroh knows her enough to accept the deal without further haggling. Out of water, or not, his little fish remains her own animal. The days melt by, their scent full of spice and sunlight. Somehow, Iroh begins finding it easier to breathe when entering the blue-eyed girl's dusky quarters. The sight of a brown hand resting limply on a silken bedspread quits inspiring the choking fear of endings, a worry fueled by the memories of ocean air and silence. One morning, he enters the room expecting to find a tired face and closed eyes, testimony of another harsh night and shadows. Instead, sunshine spills on the floors and walls, a sweet glaze. Katara sits on the threshold between the room and the veranda, the undyed fabric of her sleeping robes a bland contrast to the colors of the garden beyond. She answers Ira's greeting with a smile he's never met before. The flowers just smelled so good when I woke up. I wanted to see what they looked like while the ground was still damp. It's nice, isn't it? And for a moment, it is. Autumn. It is the season of rain, of clear, damp mornings and melancholy themes, cooler nights. Nature's late colors staff the garden, the sap of every green soul rushing forward like blood suffusing a shy beauty's cheek in the first moments of romance. Beautiful, but fleeting. The cooler weather is a balm to Katara, who rustles through the ornamental grasses for hours before finally returning inside with damp socks and seed-speckled hens. The changing plant life fascinates her. Every flower and weed is a wonder to find and pet. She studies the stem of a lily, like a scholar deciphering the lines of a classic, or the mystery of a poem. Iroh marvels at so much potent concentration being stored in such a small container. But the more marvelous is the quickness of her mind, a current refusing to be damned, regardless of the size of the challenge. Her literacy grows daily. It is flint in her hands, eager for tinder to feed its spark. Katara's aptitude for calligraphy is a surprise to her tutors. Her immediate fondness of the art is a surprise to Iroh. One would swear it's magic more than talent, my lord. Her brush doesn't spill a drop of ink. While the instructor laughs, Iroh smiles and subtly changes the subject. Yet this new aspect of her is not without its shadows. Katara's expression changes when she lowers brush to paper, delight tempered by an emotion Iroh hesitates to name. Introspection, perhaps, if not judgment. It is a strange, occasionally unsettling breed of thought to note flitting across a child's face. Iroh, with his appreciation for the uncommon, is steadfastly drawn to the tilt of Katara's head when she finishes reading a passage, or the sudden pensive reveries that pause her brush halfway through a sutra. 
she has made it her mission to learn. Of what teacher, he cannot be sure. Winter It is the season of twilight, of bare branches and moss, of warm kettles softening the presence of longer nights. The capital lies too far south to suffer the stiff freezing of its urban brethren, but it still submits to the brisker sea winds and paler sun. Katara is incredulous when Iroh grumbles about the arriving cold. She doesn't understand the complaining. It is amusing, he supposes, to a mind born in the southern tundra and accustomed to being dwarfed by icebergs. But she passes him the teacup with genuine sympathy. Her sense of irony, a skill growing more acute by the day, is momentarily overshadowed by her kind nature. Together, they drink tea and eat small, dry cakes shaped like lotuses. The sweetness lingers in Ira's mouth, pleasure bolstered by conversation. No longer satisfied with only ink, Katara's liquid intuition and curiosity has progressed into blends and brews. Her tongue and nose easily distinguish the subtleties of one aftertaste from another, or deciphering the marriage of ginseng and ginger. Likewise, her eyes and fingertips catalog the flaws and perfections of the skin of an antique kettle or the glazed lip of a cup. In the mottled pattern of every varnish, she finds a story. Lately, as the garden grows sparse, more and more scrolls tend to vanish from Iroh's library. Their eventual return is as smooth and as imperceptible as their departure. Iroh answers the phenomenon by purchasing longer volumes and keeping a carved pine stool to help her reach the higher shelves. Though she has teachers aplenty, Katara brings the majority of her questions to Iroh. Frequently, what she asks to be explained would be considered too plain or simple, too obvious, to require scrutiny. Or perhaps it is because they are conventions too deeply buried in the clay of his culture for even a man like Iroh to consider questioning. More and more often, Iroh ponders this. The architecture of romance in a poem, the names of herbs in their soup, the histories of cities she's never seen. Katara's curiosity is without prejudice. But no matter how varied the topics, one thing remains constant. Underneath their every exchange runs a thin river of subjects they do not touch. Because she is still too young, and he is already too tired. Spring. It is the season of change, of winds turning soft and happy, of birds returning to familiar gardens. Again, everything is new and ready to don fresh robes of life and vigor. Every cup brims with potential. Katara's latest hobby is the acquisition and emulations of court speech. She juggles euphemisms and symbols, courtesy and wit, procedure and frivolity, and treats a century of standards like tiles in a game. Iroh can't decide whether to be impressed by the girl's dexterity or worried over the scorn threading its glibness. Ultimately, he offers careful warnings, but forbids nothing. Already, it's becoming clear that his little fish cannot stay a secret. Over the course of the year, people have noticed that the dragon's odd companion and curiosity has bloomed, though there are few that know her face. There are many who know her name. 
Does Katara know this? Yes. Does it worry her? Time will tell. Draped in pale robes of blue, soft fabric, subtly marked in a wave and shell pattern, a coral comb in her hair, Katara sits on the veranda and rolls a slim brush between her fingers. Wherever her thoughts, they've clearly abandoned the milkweed-colored paper askew on the writing desk. The paper is not unmarked. Iroh edges closer to glimpse a line of poetry skittering across the sheet. And I remember the moon like smoke on the river. The characters slant beautifully, their richness exemplary despite their maker's apparent lack of interest. Katara's calligraphy has progressed at a remarkable pace. What were once the pretty efforts of a child have matured into the works of grace. Iroh proudly keeps one of her renditions, an autumn passage about lanterns and fog, displayed in his quarters. Her skill, he knows, is not common in a child this young. More specifically, her skill is not common, period. Iroh has only to remember the grumbling efforts of his nephew and the pained expression of the boy's harried tutors to understand how much of a daily struggle the lessons are becoming. Poor Zuko. The boy tries hard, but who could blame him for losing patience with a task he has no interest in, especially when forced to suffer the company of bland scholars who offer nothing to tempt the imagination? Iroh stops, startled by the plan suddenly blooming in his mind. It is a simple plan, little more than an idea, really. But he thinks of his nephew, the young prince locked in a castle, learning nothing new. Slowly, he turns to look again at his ward, foreign and gifted, sitting alone with her thoughts. Iroh thinks about changes. Katara, gather your pins and inks, little fish. We are going on a little trip today. It might seem a bit strange to you at first, but, well, I think it's time for you to meet someone. Someone special. His name is Zuko. Author's Note Katara's poem comes from the Tang Shi San Pai Shu, or 300 Tang Poems, an anthology of Chinese poetry compiled in the 18th century. The complete poem, written by Du Mu, is as follows. A Night at a Tavern Solitary at the Tavern I am shut in with loneliness and grief. Under the cold lamp, I brood on the past. I am kept awake by a lost wild goose. Roused at dawn from a misty dream, I read, a year late, news from home. And I remember the moon like smoke on the river, and a fisher boat moored there, under my door.
On the day that Prince Zuko, heir to the Fire Nation and future Fire Lord and Firebending Master, turns ten, he almost drowns. It is a rather stupid incident, really. One of his birthday gifts had been a custom suit of armor. The formal design of the armor meant that it was too bulky to be practical for real battle, but it was real armor, and the idea of letting go of something he had wanted for so long was not appealing. Usually, no child is required to spend a full day of ceremonies in a stifling cocoon of metal plating, not even a prince. However, Zuko is more than a prince. Zuko is Zuko. His army of attendants, painfully familiar with the force of the boy's tantrums, surrendered to his insistence without struggle. Let him wear it until it wears him out, they decide. What's the worst that could happen? He'll fall into the garden pond. Ha ha. Ha. It happens. One moment he is running across the bridge, unwatched and free, and the next there is a misstep, pitching one foot behind the other, and down he goes. First, there is only a simple confusion. Where did the bridge go? The rush of gravity whistling past until his body breaks the water's surface and Zuko goes under. The water is deep. Ironic that the future commander of the strongest navy in the world is rendered helpless in the water. Ironic, but true. For a moment, desperation is enough to send him back to the surface. Unfortunately, it is not enough to keep him there when thirty pounds of beautifully crafted tradition are hell-bent on dragging him below the cool, dark water. Strange that he is surrounded by water, and yet his chest burns fiercely. Powerless, suffocating, and utterly furious, Zuko fights his fall with every sinking inch. He's going to die, stupid, cold water, stupid water everywhere, going to die, Die! Father! I don't want to die! No! No, he doesn't die. Suddenly, a great force shoves him upward through the water. Light and air tear away the darkness, and Zuko crashes onto the earth, chest burning still. A hard tug, and the helmet vanishes off his head, making it easier to turn over and vomit the water. Out! 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 Zuko's head reels, and he's probably hallucinating, because he can actually feel the water surge up his throat and out. A miserable sentry of retching later, he manages to get an elbow under him and sit up. He looks at the stranger beside him. The stranger looks back. The stranger is a girl, but that's not the strangest thing about her. In his groggy state, it's difficult for Zuko to identify exactly what is so obviously out of place about the girl in front of him. He only knows that something most definitely is. She's small, and clearly younger than Zuko, probably eight or seven. In the fading light of early evening, it's hard to tell the exact color of her skin, but he thinks it may be darker than his, darker in a way that he's not used to seeing. Her hair is darker too, upswept in a standard chignon common to very young nobility, or among common girls. The silk of her short jacket shines wetly, expensive, and although the outfit itself is cut simply, it is missing the ornate embroidery particular to court noblewomen. Overall, though, 
There is nothing truly unconventional about her shape. It's the eyes. There's something weird about her eyes. They're... That was really dumb. Why did you jump into the water just like that? It is the first thing she tells him. It's not the type of introduction the crown prince of the Fire Nation is used to. Zuko opens his mouth to growl that he didn't jump. He fell. But somehow that sounds even more embarrassing. Another bout of heaving shreds his voice. He coughs, chest burning with the effort to breathe past the coldness swallowed, and feels a light hand lay upon him. Don't fight it. Just let it out. You're going to be okay. Let it out. Her voice has something, an accent, or lack thereof, that he can't place. Something strange, unexpected, foreign. More dry heaves and aching than a few sore breaths and coughs, and then Zuko is aware of the girl removing his armor. Her fingers dig into the elaborate knots, keeping the pieces together with resolve, tugging until one arm is free and then the other. A soldier's daughter, he decides. Whose? What are you doing here? The inner gardens are forbidden to outsiders. Nobody can be here without permission. I have permission. Do you? I don't need permission. Why not? Princes don't need permission for anything. You're the prince? Of course. Oh. I thought you'd be taller. And dried, Prince Zuko. She has the softest, brightest, clearest blue eyes I've ever seen. A true prince does not tolerate being pawed at by strange little girls. Who are you? I guess I'm... Nobody. And that is how Katara meets Zuko. Flowers in the Ashes Comfort after an evening in the company of his brother, Iroh is bone-achingly eager to welcome the company of his blue-eyed ward. Kiss. Katara never holds his hand, not even when it's allowed, and every scared line of her body wants to. But when close, trapped in a crowd, she brushes small fingertips over his, and Iroh understands. Soft. Katara's punishment for sneaking into the library consists of a lecture about organization and a footstool to help her reach the higher shelves. Pain. Hmm. Those eyes. So unusual. The noblewoman says unkindly, and Katara looks away. Potatoes. She buries them in the garden while Iroh smiles, but it's too soon to tell if it's a planting or a funeral. Rain. 
It's the only time the dark, wet spots on her sleeve don't sadden him. Chocolate. But ginseng is still my favorite. Happiness. The first time he hears Katara laugh, Iroh loses his last doubt about having refused mercy to a child dying in the snow. Telephone. The Dragon of the West's strange ward, the General's blue-eyed wonder, Iroh's foreign curio, the old man's latest oddity. Ears. Shadows in the hallways don't worry Katara. The mouths of their owners do. Name. The character for Dragon is less complicated than she expects. The word and man don't have that much in common, apparently. Sensual. The curve of her jaw warns Iroh to brace himself for the future. Death. The helmet is an awkward weight in her hands. Suddenly, Katara is glad that it's an antique. Sex. Iroh's shock at her discovery is matched only by Katara's confusion at having the book ripped out of her hands. Touch. The hand on Katara's shoulder is warm, reassuring, but she doesn't relax until her feet back across the doorstep. Weakness. Tell me about your nephew. Tears. Thank you. She reaches for the teacup with one hand and wipes her eyes with the other. Speed. Time is distance. The girl standing in his garden is a thousand miles beyond the mute on the deck's edge. Wind. I don't know, but the previous one was called Roku. Freedom. Because she may ask for anything and is allowed to do anything, Katara chooses to sit in the garden and flip pebbles into the pond. Life. It's not so strange to wish for snow during a summer afternoon. Jealousy. Describing the prince's practice session, Ira wonders at the look on Katara's face, but is distracted when he discovers that the tea in his cup is inexplicably cold. Hands. Katara learns to play pie show by listening to Iroh describe the tiles. She learns to win by studying the hand that moves them. Taste. The pepper flakes make her sneeze till water gathers at the corners of her eyes. Katara finishes the whole bag anyway. Devotion. Katara traces the black thread against the red cloth. Silent. Ira watches the water girl outlined against the fire insignia and is torn. Forever. A parent never forgets his child. The pain in his eyes convinces Katara to accept the words. Blood. He doesn't really look like you, but I think it'd be better if he did. Sickness. At the peak of fever, Katara calls out for her mother, crying. Iroh, hero of a nation, sits helplessly by her side. Melody. 
It took the discovery of three snapped flutes under the bed, a chamisen in the garden pond, and a horn in the orange tree, before Iroh acknowledged that Katara would not be taught what she didn't want to learn. Star. They'll damage something. Home. Silk instead of fur, iron instead of ice, silver instead of clay. The markings of her surroundings are a change easier to accept than forgive. Confusion. He reaches for her, and Katara falls back, half asleep and unable to distinguish the man in the room from the soldier in her nightmares. Fear. She claims she can't remember their faces, but Iroh notices Katara doesn't look up at him when she says it. Lightning. Thunder. The moment between the flash and the echo isn't long, but then neither is the walk to Iroh's room. Bonds. They share no blood, no common land, no recognizable similarity, but they are not strangers to each other despite seeming so strange to others. Market. Catching each other's eye, they giggle, a girl and a general, with pear juice running down their chins. Technology. Katara spreads new maps next to the old ones and waits for Iroh to explain how the Fire Nation has redesigned the world. Gift. Katara likes Iroh, but no amount of affection is enough to warrant yet another stone three-headed goat monkey frog something in her room. Smile. She learns how to smile without showing her teeth, and to speak without saying what she means. Innocence. Iroh does not think of her as a daughter, because if he had a daughter, he would never let her learn what Katara knows. Completion. History is not her favorite subject, but it's the one Katara's most attentive to. Iroh cements the interest by explaining that one cannot fathom an ending of an event without understanding the conditions of its start. Clouds. Katara knows Iroh is different from others, adults and otherwise, because it takes a special sort of person to find a winged frog in the sky. Sky. Katara watches the color of her sky reflect in the pond. Ira watches the power of his hope reflect in the child. Heaven? Here you are, little one. I've lit the incense for you. She was a very good person. I see. Iroh doesn't question Katara's right to hate. Instead, he marvels at her refusal to obey it. Son. Come dawn, Katara's too exhausted to worry, 
and falls asleep under the comforting weight of Iroh's hand on her hair. Moon. Katara talks to the moon with her eyes, silently, explaining what she doesn't want her guardian to hear. Waves. The screen is beautiful, an undeniable work of art, but its painted ocean is dry to the touch and thus useless. Hair. When she tries doing it from memory, hands shaky, strands slip out and tangle until finally, Katara gives up and lets her maid bind her braids in the popular Fire Nation style. Supernova. I forgive you, Iroh. Thank you for listening to this adapted audio recording of Tempest in a Teacup by AKA Vertigo. Shu Wang and Katara were voiced by me, Doodle Lady. Iroh and Zuko are voiced by me, Ride Boldly Ride. The narrator was voiced by me, Bulletproof Teacup. Scripts were arranged by myself. Visuals were created by Doodle Lady. Audio was arranged by Ride Boldly Ride. The next segment in our saga will continue in two weeks. Thank you for listening.